All right, well, in your folder you have a little outline there, and uh, uh, we'll be going through that. We're in Romans chapter 3, and I just want to read our text for us this morning. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just we looked at the beginning of part of this last uh, week and we talked a little bit about the advantages of being Jewish and we talked about in chapter 9, he mentions it here, but then he kind of takes a break all the way till chapter 9, and he continues the list of the advantage of those who are Jewish. And the list was in last week's outline. It's the adoption as sons. In Romans 9, it talks about that. The divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and even the human ancestry of Jesus Christ. And you might say, well, why does Paul just pull out this example here? He says, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, what's the use? He just got done beating them over the head with a club in chapter 2. And at this point, his Jewish readers are probably saying, well, then what, what difference does it make, Paul? And we talked about that last week, but he says, wait a minute. Don't lose sight of the fact that it is an advantage being Jewish. Jewish, you were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so Paul immediately understands here that there's going to be some skeptics in his audience. And he goes forth here in Romans chapter 3 and he begins to ask questions that he knew they were asking in their minds. Have you ever done that, put together a presentation? In the middle of the presentation, you can see the question marks kind of rising above people's heads. And you're thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to answer the question since I'm doing the presentation. And so you say something like, well, you might be asking yourself, and then you go ahead and you answer the question. And it kind of relieves that tension. Well, that's what Paul wants to do. And he knew that the Jews were going to argue with him, that they would raise some objections. So Paul acts out of this kind of knowledge, and he kind of plays out a little dialogue here in the first eight verses of chapter 3 with his imaginary Jewish antagonist standing by his side. It wasn't really imaginary, by the way. The the Jews didn't really care for Paul. He uh, faced this kind of interaction all the time when he was out ministering. This wasn't new to him. It was very common for him to have to respond to the Jew who hears his message and reacts rather violently at times. And so he puts together these arguments in our text, and he wants us to understand that he was very familiar with this. This wasn't something new. It's kind of like when I hear a Christian being surprised when they go out and they take a stand for their faith in this world, and they they say, "I, I can't believe I was persecuted for that. Well, why don't you believe it? If you're taking a stand for Christ, someone's not going to like it. Someone's not going to appreciate it. Now, if you're waffling back and forth and, and that kind of thing, then they probably won't even notice you. You won't even show up on the radar screen. 
But if you're standing for Christ and you're standing for his word and you're standing for wholesome Christian values in this society, then you know what? People have an issue with that. And they they had an issue with it in Jesus' day. They had an issue with it in Paul's day. And so he was very uh, commonly accused. And the things that they accused him of were, first of all, they said that you're perverting the, the Scriptures, Paul. You're taking the Scriptures and you're twisting them. You're perverting the Old Testament to, to meet your own needs. And you're taking Jewish law and the doctrine and the tradition and you're, you're kind of running it under your feet. We don't appreciate that. Now, what was Paul's message? All you have to do is read through the New Testament. His message was clear. His message was Jesus Christ. His message was a new covenant. His message was a message of grace. He told people, you know what? The end of the ceremonial laws and everything, that all has come to an end. He wanted people to understand it. It mattered what happened in your heart, not just up here in your head. And the Jews of Paul's day had a problem connecting what was with their, between their head and their heart. So they would act one way, but in their heart, they were dark, they were sinful. He presented a gospel of freedom, not of bondage. And so he was consistently attacked by the Jews of his day. And their traditional, self-righteous, their legalistic attitudes were really the object, you might say, of much of what Paul had to say. So over and over and again, they, they accused him of being a heretic, of speaking lies, of perverting the word of God, twisting scripture. Look over at Acts chapter 21 with me. Acts chapter 21. It says here in the text that when they found him in the temple in Jerusalem on this one occasion, it says there, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching every, everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he has even brought Greeks or Gentiles into the temple and has defiled the holy place. See, they had a problem with Paul. In that passage, they accused him of three things. They accused him of speaking against the people. They accused him of speaking against the word of God, against the law. And they accused him of blaspheming this holy place. Now, you might say, well, didn't he do that? Yeah, he did, to some degree. That's exactly what he did. He basically told the Jewish people that, you know what? It's not good enough just to be Jewish in your ancestry. That doesn't really matter. That's like when you run into somebody and you ask them, are you a believer? Are you a Christian? And they say, oh, yeah. How long have you been a Christian? Well, I've been a Christian all my life. What do you mean by that? Well, I was raised in a Christian home. I have a problem with that. Nobody's been a Christian all their life. The Bible says that we're born in sin. There comes a point in time where we have to deal with that sin. I'm not saying you have to pinpoint that time of decision. Some people can't do that, and that's okay. But I've run into a lot of people that think just because their parents are Christian, that automatically they're Christian because they go to church or because they pray before their meals or because once in a while they dust their Bible off and read it. All those things may be good things, but none of those things make you a Christian. None of those things make you a believer. And so Paul was confronting the Jews of his day saying, look, just because You know, you say your father's Abraham, big deal. They had a problem with that. He said it's not enough to try to keep all these laws that they put in place, these ceremonial laws. I mean, they had ceremonies coming out their ears, folks. A lot of times in Christianity today, a lot of people have ceremonies coming out their ears. They got all sorts of things they do, traditional things. And they hold on to them as if, They're sacred. Ask yourself, what are the sacred cows in your life? What are some things that maybe you're holding on to, but God says nothing about? That leads to legalism. 
when you're telling people to follow something and you can't say, well, here, the reason I'm telling you that is because the Bible says it right here. If you're just saying that because that's what your family's done, it's tradition in your life, that's as bad as the Jews having these ceremonies that he had. And he also said that this place is not, in fact, any longer the holy place. Jesus kind of proved that out, didn't he, when he ran everybody out of the temple? And so he really did speak to these issues. He's not, he's not arguing that fact. But they accused him of speaking these issues, and they said, you know what, you're, you're pushing it a little too far. Look at Acts chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. Acts chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. Here's another occasion where they came against Paul. This was a common occurrence in Paul's ministry. Verses 5 and 6, it says, For we have found this man to be a plague. (laughs) Doesn't sound very nice. One who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world. And he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. But we seized him. Acts 24, verses 5 and 6. Down at verse, turn over a page to Acts chapter 26. Once again, here we see Paul rendering his testimony before Agrippa. And Paul says in verse, excuse me, 19, Acts 26, 19, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What was that? Remember, that's how he was converted. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And then he says in verse 21, For this reason, look, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. They were not pleased with Paul's ministry even though he was one of them. He was no longer one of them. He was the enemy. It was because, you know why? He told them that they were sinners. It was because he confronted them with a need to repent. Which basically, in effect, is saying, you know what? Your heritage and your tradition and your worship and all your ceremonies, none of that is going to save you. Will you try saying that to a religious person today? See what kind of reaction you're going to get. It's not going to be a positive one, beloved. It's going to be a negative one. They're not going to appreciate that. We have to be very, very careful, even in our own faith and in our own Christianity, that we don't adopt an attitude of self-righteousness. There's a lot of churches that think, you know what? They come together on a Sunday morning and they come within these four walls and they think, hey, this is, this is what it's all about. And that world out there, that's the evil, the wicked world. You stay away from that. You don't go near that. You just you know, huddle together as people of faith. And they think somehow that that's obeying what the Lord tells us to do. He told us just the opposite, did he not? He said, go out and be into the world, be the salt, be the light of the world. Go into all the world and preach the gospel of Christ. And so this was very common in Paul's life. This wasn't the only time here in Romans he was attacked So he created this rift instantly amongst the Jews. And when you read throughout the book of Acts, we're not going to take time, obviously, this morning to do it. But after his conversion, wherever Paul is found, they're after him. There's a problem. There's a troublemaker in the midst. And they think it's Paul because he's upsetting their apple cart. He's making them look bad. And that's what they're concerned about, how they look. 
Fortunately, that's not too far from where most of our churches are at today. It's all about how you look. I mean, God forbid a, a body of Christ should come together on a Sunday morning and actually be transparent for once. And quit putting those pasty little smiles on your face when your life's a wreck. How you doing, brother? Oh, I'm fine. Everything's fine. When everything's not fine. This should be the place where we come together and are able to share those kind of burdens, share those kind of needs. Not in fear of judgment or someone putting you down or thinking less of you. This is a place where those needs can be met through the body of Christ. That's the body of Christ coming together and ministering one to another. Some of you may be going through some things right now that are earth-shattering. But because you won't share it with anybody, no one knows that maybe you need a little extra care, a little extra love. Maybe, you, maybe we have somebody in our body that's gone through the exact same thing and God has gone, got them through it. And they can come alongside of you and be an encouragement to you. But see, unless we're willing to drop our pride and be transparent and open with brothers and sisters in Christ, that will never take place. And that's kind of how the Jews were. You know, the Bible in the New Testament says that they would go out on the street corner dressed in all their garb and pray and lift their holy hands to the Lord. On one occasion, you recall, a man over in the corner that beat his chest because he was convicted of his sin. The only, thing, the only words he could get out was, Lord, just be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't go on and pontificate and use, you know, vowels and these in his prayer line. No, he just cried out to God, God, I need some help here. That's what God wants to hear. He wants transparent hearts before him. I want to leave you with one other illustration of of persecution in the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. This is kind of interesting because we know this to be the the, uh, Stephen who is basically standing up for the Lord. Acts chapter 6. It gives us good insight into the kind of response that a preacher of the gospel got in these early years. That's what he was. He was a preacher of the gospel. He preached the gospel. And so Stephen was going over and over again everywhere, and he was basically preaching the same message Paul was preaching. Even though Paul wasn't even converted yet. He preached the same message that Paul would preach after his conversion. And the Jews in the synagogues and all these places, it says they began to argue with him. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, And of those from Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. So he's preaching the gospel and they thought, we're going to argue with this guy. Look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Notice it wasn't his intellect. It wasn't his craft. It was God working through him in wisdom and through the power of the Spirit. Verse 11 says, And then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemies, words against Moses and God. Notice, it's the same thing every time. Well, you can't speak against Moses that way. That's what they accused Jesus of doing. That's what they accused Stephen of doing. That's what they accused Paul of doing. So if you're speaking against Moses, you're speaking against the Mosaic law. And if you're speaking against the Mosaic law and the temple and the ceremonies and the sacrifices and everything else, then basically you're speaking against God. And that's blasphemy. And it tells us there that they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. They came upon him, they caught him and brought him to the council. 
and they set up false witnesses. In other words, they rigged this trial. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They were good at that. Just like the trial of our Lord. And they said in verse 13, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. We have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Look at the last verse. I love this verse. And gazing at him. Remember, he's in front of all these people. Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Wow. Isn't that amazing? He's testifying of the glory of God. We know the story, how it ended. They murdered him. They stoned him to death. And you know what? One of the people who were watching them stone this preacher of the gospel, perhaps maybe he even picked up a stone himself, who knows, was one named Saul, who later became Paul. And you know what? It's interesting that that Paul suffered the very same fate that Stephen suffered. That shouldn't surprise us, because our Lord endured the very same thing as well, didn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ, when he spoke against the Jews, he said, in effect, you're not children of Abraham. That's what he said. You're children of what? Your father who? The devil. Can you imagine saying that to someone who's religious? I mean, that's just unheard of. He told him in another text, you search the scriptures, but the scriptures are they which speak of me. In other words, you're missing the point. You've been entrusted with the word of God, and you're missing the whole point. Why? Because they worship the book. They didn't worship the person of the book. It's very easy for us to do at times. So whether it's Jesus, Stephen, or Paul, the very nature of the gospel, it goes against the grain. It goes against the grain of traditional Judaism. It goes against the grain of traditional society today. People don't like to hear that they're a sinner and they need to be saved. And so some try to dumb down the gospel make it sound appealing so maybe they can get more responses and more affirmations, which doesn't really do any good to anybody. They couldn't stand any attack on their perverted legalism because in their own minds they affirmed their salvation on the base, basis of their heritage and of their legalism and their circumcision. And so Paul, in Romans chapter 3, basically throws all that out and says, what do you got left? See, these were apostolic messengers, messengers who were blowing away the security that they held on to. They held on to the security of all these things. And when you do that to people, they become rather upset. So they murdered Jesus, they murdered Stephen, and eventually the Apostle Paul lost his own life, as with many of the other apostles. Why? Because they didn't want to hear the truth. They weren't interested in the truth. And when they were confronted about the inadequacies of their own understandings of the truth, basically they got angry, they got infuriated. And so... In Romans 6, or 3, we see here a series of questions. And we looked at the first one last week. Does Paul's teaching undermine Jewish privilege? He says, what benefit is there being Jewish? And we talked about that last week. You might paraphrase it this way. Does, doesn't your argument about being a Jew inwardly imply that there's no advantage in being a Jew at all? And Paul answers and said, no, because I entrusted the Jews with the very word of God. What's the benefit of being Jewish? 
they had the oracles of God. What's the advantage of being a believer in Christ? To make it a modern day application for us. Do you take that for granted? Do you take being part of a church that stands on the truth and teaches the word of God for granted? What advantage comes to your life as a result of that? There's a lot of careless and ungrateful people who really squander those advantages. Do you value the scriptures as the very very oracles of God? 2 Peter 1.21 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. No prophecy, no no letter of God's word was ever produced just by somebody sitting down saying, hey, I think I'm going to write my own book. No. It says, but they were moved along, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The second objection we see in verses 3 and 4. You've got to kind of put your thinking caps on here with me this morning going to try to get through this what if some were unfaithful question is does paul's teaching nullify god's promises to the jews does paul's teaching nullify god's promises to the jews to paraphrase their question but doesn't the unbelief of many jews nullify god's promises that's kind of what he's saying and paul's answer is no jewish unbelief does not nullify god's faith to them or his right to judge their sin. Does it undermine God's faithfulness? When you stop and you, you ask yourself that question, I mean, when you think of the Jews, okay, they're God's chosen people, okay, we went over that last week, I got that. But you know what? Most Jews do not believe the gospel message of Jesus Christ. They don't believe the message of the very word of God that was entrusted to them. That what it points to, it points to a Messiah, it points to Christ. When you look at it logically, it could be nobody else. But they don't want to hear it. Acts seven fifty one says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. See, they're stiff-necked. You know, I got a stiff neck. I'm going to a therapist on Thursday to try to deal with this neck. But when you got a stiff neck, it's not comfortable. You can't sleep. You can't do a lot of things. It's frustrating. It says, you stiff-necked people. In other words, your your neck only moves one way. You, You only go your way. You only do what you want to do. You're not able to come under the teaching of the Word of God. And so... He asks the question, well, if they don't follow that, how are they still God's chosen people? Does their rejection of God's invitation lead to the conclusion that God will not fulfill his promises to the Jews? You have to go back and you have to ask yourself this question. Was salvation ever offered by God based on, upon heritage or ceremony or works? Did God ever say, you'll be saved if you'll do this, this? No, he never did that. Ever. He's going to cover these questions more thoroughly in chapters 9 through 11 when we get there in Romans. But I want you to understand the unconditional promises from God to the the nation of Israel were made as a, a whole nation, not as individual Jews. In Genesis 12, 3, we say, I will, he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be praised, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's, it's speaking of not individual Jews, it's speaking of the whole nation of Israel, of God's chosen people. When you get down to the individual basis, how are we blessed by God? We're blessed by God. Our blessing from God is always conditional upon our faithfulness. 
Not our heritage, not our ceremony, not our works. We don't, we don't serve a God who says, well, if, if you're just at church five days a work, I'm, week, I'm going to bless you more than somebody else. That would be a work. Now, you may benefit from that, but that benefit's not necessarily coming directly from God because God does not base his blessing on us on our heritage or ceremony or our works. He bases it on our faithfulness. Are we being faithful? So the unbelief of some cannot prevent the salvation of God as he has promised. God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled one day. And he says in verse 4, well, what about man's unfaithfulness? Can that nullify God's faithfulness? I'll remind you in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Paul is very adamant about this. He hits this hard and he hits it over and over and over again because he doesn't want people to think that somehow God's faithfulness depends on what we do or we don't do. God's perfect faithfulness is always shown in sharp contrast to our faithlessness. Because God is true by nature. It's part of who he is. Psalm 119 verse 160 says this, Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 119, 160. Or in the New Testament, Titus 1, 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. See, the... The real fact of the matter here is man is false. Man is faithless. That's that's who we are. In Psalm 116, verse 11, it says, All mankind are liars. And God will perfectly fulfill his faithfulness, fulfill his promises in spite of the unbelief of the Jewish nation at this present time. One day they will look on him whom they've crucified and they'll realize who he is. But right now they're they're acting in unbelief. God's judgment on man's faithlessness, his sin, proves his faithfulness. Look at verse 4. Paul says, By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It's interesting. This is a time in, in David's life that's taken out of a, a psalm there where David is under some pretty harsh situations. And he realizes, wait a minute. You know what? God is, is justified in all he does. In Psalm 51, 4, he cries out himself, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God is not only, listen to this, God is not only faithful to his promises, beloved, but God is also faithful to his warnings. He's faithful to his warnings. He doesn't just say something that's, well, I'm just going to do this for effect. God doesn't do that. Kind of like sometimes you get upset at your children and you say something for effect. You know you'd probably never do it. Growing up in my household when I would misbehave, one of my brothers inevitably, see, you better knock it off or I'm going to knock your head off. Whoa, okay. Well, I knew he wasn't really going to knock my head off, but boy, I sure thought he was, might try at least. You know, it's for effect. Back in Romans chapter 2, verse 9, he says, There will be tribulations and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. 
God is faithful in his warnings. Very faithful. That's why we as Christians have to heed those warnings. We can't just say, oh, well, we're under grace and we're going to do whatever we want because, you know what, it doesn't matter in the end. All of our sins are forgiven and uh, I'm going to heaven anyway. No. If you want to be blessed in this life, as we read last week, Psalm 1, blessed is the man then you better have your delight in the Word of God. You better have your delight in the things of God. You better be willing to set aside your own agenda and your own wants and your own needs and say, God, what do you want? What do you need me to do? How do you want me to serve? God's justice is vindicated by his punishment of David's sin. Man's faithlessness when judged by God, serves really to demonstrate God's faithfulness. You know, nobody slips under the wire. You can't escape it. So you stop and you ask yourself, if most don't believe the gospel, has God failed in his purpose to save the world? Well... We know in Scripture that all the world is not going to be saved. As we read last week, Ephesians tells us very clearly that those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world, just like the Jews were chosen to be God's people, are those who will be saved. You have to be careful of charging God with falsehood. The truthfulness of God is the primary reason of all Christian philosophy. Calvin said that. Well, look at the third objection here. Verses 5 and 8. Paul's teaching makes God unjust. But if our sin demonstrates God's righteousness, how then can he judge us for it? You might add paraphrase it this way. Paul says, but the argument, you mean that God can't judge even the Gentiles? But your teaching, Paul, implies that if my sinning abounds to God's glory, not only should I not be judged also, I ought to sin all the more. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. That's like saying, well, you know what? You know, God is, is glorified in, in saving me. God is glorified in forgiving my sins. So you know what? I'm going to go sin all the more so that he can be more glorified. Because <laughs> then I'll have more sin that he can forgive. And he said, that's, that's obscene. That's a, that's a sad argument. It's totally fair for God to judge men for that which displays his glory. He says in verse 5, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? In other words, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need forgiveness, we wouldn't need a Savior, we wouldn't need a God. So by us not being perfect, by us being sinners, it actually brings God glory. There's a wonderful book by uh, John Piper. It's called Spectacular Sins. And it talks about, part of the book talks about the sovereignty of God in everything. The sovereignty of God even in evil. The sovereignty of God and even in the falling of Satan, Lucifer. It's an amazing book. I encourage you to read it. It gives you a fresh perspective on the God that we serve. But he says here that no, that's not necessarily true. God's, the reasoning is absurd. Because God's character is at risk here. He says, by no means, verse 6, for then how could God judge the world? If that were the case, he couldn't judge anybody. And we know that he judges. It tells us throughout the scriptures. Psalm 56 says, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. 
Genesis 18.25 says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? If this were true, then we should try to do more evil so more good could come of it. It's kind of a ridiculous argument. But Paul knows that's what they're thinking. And so he says there in verse 8, And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. We have to remind ourselves that the God that we serve, beloved, as we kind of bring our hearts to our communion time, the God that we serve cannot be thought of in logical terms. You're going to get in real danger if you're trying to make logical conclusions of who God is. And I just put down a couple things there on the back of your outline. If your conclusion impugns God's character or promotes evil, it's wrong. Period. Use that as a filter. Secondly, test your conclusions to see if they have explicit scriptural warrant. Sometimes when we're talking about election, when we're talking about God choosing us before the foundation of the world, some people choose to say, well, yeah, 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 you know, my take on that is, I don't care what your take is. <laughs> what does the scripture say? Right? Because people get, get, go down all kinds of roads. Well, I think it means, you know, that God, before time, he looked down through all eternity and he saw that Steve Converse was going to bow his knee to Jesus. And so he had to choose him based on Steve's bowing of the knee. It's ridiculous. That's not what the scripture teaches. That's not what the scripture says. What does the scripture say? The scripture says, before the foundation of the world, God chose us. Why? I don't know. If you figure it out, let me know. Why did he choose you? Why did he choose me? Why didn't he choose the guy across the street? Why didn't he choose your neighbor? I don't know. That's not my call. It's above my pay grade. It's above your pay grade. That's God's business. And you know what? We have to be okay with that. Because that's who God is. What does that mean? That means, you know what? That we go out into this world and we preach the gospel to every being we come across. Why? Because I don't know who's chosen and who's not. It's not up to me. What I'm supposed to do is take the message of the gospel and deliver it to people. If they eat it up, praise the Lord. If they spit it out and trample it under their feet, praise the Lord. That's their problem. It's not mine. I don't need to take the message and say, oh, you don't like how it sounds. Huh? Well, let me change it a little bit. And maybe, maybe this time, you know, here comes the airplane. Let's see, zoom, zoom, zoom. Oh, take that bite. Oh, is that a little better? Sweeten it up a little bit for you. I left out the sin. I left out the blood of Jesus and, and, and things like that. Maybe a little left out the repentance. Put in a little, you know, Jesus is here to meet your needs. He wants to make you happy. He wants to make you wealthy. He wants to make you healthy. Who wouldn't want to take a pill like that? We need to be careful what we're communicating when we communicate the gospel. So let's test our conclusions with Scripture. And then just in closing, remind yourself. Remind yourself daily. God's ways are way beyond our comprehension. It tells us in Romans chapter 11, turn over there, Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Look at this scripture, wonderful scripture. I can't wait to get to this part. Romans 11, verse 33 to 36. It says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Can you tell Paul's a little excited here? He says, how unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, 
Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul just kind of says it the way it is. You can't even begin to weigh into the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge and wisdom. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For the, my thoughts, God says, are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. I mean, if we could... If this was a human being speaking, we'd say, what a prideful, arrogant person. But this is the very God, the creator God, who knows no sin. He's perfect in every way. So when he says things like this, he says them because they're true. He doesn't say them to get an effect out of you. Whether you like this or not is irrelevant. And that's what we have to begin to understand when we share the gospel with the lost. You know what? We're, we're taking them a message that is not appealing. A message that calls them sinners. A message that indicts them. A message that says, you know what? You don't have any hope in yourself. The message says you have to point to Christ. You have to go to Christ to get hope. And if they're a prideful person, they're saying, I'm not going to anybody to get hope. Guys, you can relate to this. It's like when you go and you buy that you know, piece of furniture you, know, you put together. <laughs> or maybe it's a toy at Christmas time. And you open the box. And you see the instructions. And you just kind of, hey, I'm a man. you know. Give me the screwdriver, power drill. We're ready to go. And we get this parts laid out. And we start building the thing, right? Thinking, ah, this makes sense. This is how this goes. And we get halfway through the thing. Maybe we make it to the end and we got bolts left over in pieces and we're going, uh, maybe I should have read the directions. Maybe I should have done it the way the person who created this thing intended it rather than trying to do it my own way. That's the same thing when it comes to life. God says, you know what? I know you better than anybody. I know how many hairs you have on your head or how many hairs you don't have on your head. Whatever the case, I know you and I know what's best for you. And I need you to bow your knee to me because I want to save your heart. I want to save your life. I want to use you for my glory. Because in our depravity, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them. Because they're spiritually discerned. Remember that the next time you go out on an evangelism thing and you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they're not responsive. Remind yourself, look, this isn't up to my ingenuity. It's not up to me to pull out the super neat track and say, I'll try this one now. That one didn't work. No. Is God working in their heart or is he not? If he's not, that's not your problem. You can't make him work. You just give him the message. And as you're faithful to give that message, you have faith in the word of God that somehow, someday, that that's going to make transformation happen in that person's life through the power of the Spirit. If you go out there trying to share your faith thinking that it's up to you to close the deal, you know, you've got to get them to pray the prayer or raise the hand or whatever, I mean, you're going to be very discouraged. That or you're going to go through life leading a bunch of people down a road of deception because there's a lot of people that do a lot of things just to get out from hearing what they're hearing at the present time. It's like when you're trying to lecture your kid and they're going, yeah, 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 yeah. They're not listening. They don't care. So when we come to this, this table, and there's some other thoughts there that you can look at yourself, but when we come to the communion table this morning, you know, this is an open table for believers. This is for those who have put their faith or trust in Christ. It's for those who have bowed their knee to the Savior and said, yes, I want to give my life to you. I want to give it up. I'm tired of trying to do things my own way. 
and I want to know Christ personally. If you're here this morning and you're just depending on religious formalities or ceremonies or activities or thinking that somehow being in church makes you holy or something like that, that doesn't cut it. You're being deceived because those things cannot save you. Only faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has accomplished on Calvary can save you. You ask yourself, as we prepare our hearts this morning, that question. Have you put your faith, your trust in Christ? Has he saved your heart, your soul? Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come before this table. Father, we pray that you would take the words that we read this morning in Romans. They're, they're deep words. We, we barely did this text justice, to, to be honest. There's so much more there. But Lord, I know that you'll, you'll take this and you'll, you'll enrich our lives, edify us, build us up through the power of your word and your spirit. Lord, I pray that as we come to this time of our service where we remember what Christ has done for us, Lord, I pray that you would do that work in each individual heart. Father, if there's something that we're holding on to, something we need to repent of, the Word of God is very clear. It says that we need to examine ourselves before we come to this table. It doesn't mean we examine our neighbor or our husband or our wife. No, we examine our own heart. And we want to come to this table with a pure heart before you. And so, Lord, we thank you for this provision. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's yet to hear or yet to put their faith in trust in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation, Lord, I pray that this morning might be the morning that they would cry out like that man in the New Testament, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. I'm in a mess. Help me, Lord. Show me my need of a Savior. He'll answer that prayer when it's prayed in faith, believing. He'll save you even here this morning. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.